Well, do, t- <clears throat> do take your Bibles and turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Getting to know someone is an exciting adventure. Whether it was chemistry or circumstances that brought you together, those first meetings, those first conversations are the way in which we begin to explore uh, what we think about matters that are going on in the world, perhaps, their view of politics, their view of the church, their view of uh, the world at large. As we spend time with them, as we talk more, we discover the depths that are there. We discover that although there were things we saw, we thought we saw on the surface, the further you go, the more you discover the incredible riches that there are inside a human person. Relationships develop slowly, but over time, circumstances happen that show you more. You find they're tender, showing affection. You find that they're kind in their handling of children. You find that they're strong in times of trial. You discover they're passionate, resolute when there's injustice. Each new revelation takes you deeper, shows you more of the strength and grace that characterizes that individual. And in many ways, the Bible is our introduction to God. We're getting to know God. He doesn't tell us everything there is to know about Him all at once. He actually doesn't even list the things we need to know about him in some kind of shopping list of characteristics. It's over time, and it's in the context of circumstances that some of his characteristics become obvious. They're brought to the surface. We find this happening here in Isaiah. We're going to find much more of the depths of God as we go forward in Isaiah, but today we're going to look at one particular aspect that that appears in these verses that we've just read together. Remember, what we've learned so far is that Isaiah is describing the relationship between Judah and Jerusalem and their covenant Lord. They were in a, a relationship that's both personal and formal called the covenant in which God had promised to do certain things for them, and he had some conditions, and they had promised to fulfill those conditions. And the work of a prophet like Isaiah was to be a covenant prosecutor, establishing the case of Yahweh versus Israel. And in this first chapter, he's marshalling the evidence that just as before his eyes, a devastated land in verses 2 to 6, a failing church in verses 10 to 20, and now he's summing up the case for the prosecution. He stated God's ultimatum in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. God is saying to us, look, there are two paths before you. These are the realities. I want you to think about this. I want you to come to me so that no matter how sinful you have been, no matter how much your iniquity is dark, dyed, crimson, red, I can wash it clean, I can make it white as snow. Come to me. But be warned of this. 
If you turn from me, if you go your own way, if you're not willing and obedient, if you refuse and rebel, you'll be eaten by the sword. You'll be devoured by the sword. Verse 20, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He is serious. God is serious. We've learned that so far. Now we come to this section today, and what we learn about God is this. First of all, God's threats are more serious than you could ever dare to imagine. And secondly, we learn God's promises are more generous than you could ever dare to hope. First of all, God's threats are more serious than you could ever dare to imagine. Look how it begins. God is addressing Ms. Jerusalem, his bride. He uses the language of the bride, and he says some very positive things about the bride. There was a, a past. There was a time when Jerusalem and Judah were faithful. Now, they weren't totally faithful. They were never perfectly faithful. They were never consistently faithful, but they were by and large faithful, and that's, that's enough for God to point back to it and say, that's what they once were. Once they listened to him, once they followed him, once they gave their allegiance to him, and under the reign of King David, their enemies were destroyed and exterminated, and their city was defended, and their life was secure because of their relationship with God. They were a faithful city. On those days, Lady Righteousness used to lodge there. The word to lodge means to live as a guest in a motel. She, she visited and she stayed for a while, Lady Righteousness did. She, she loved to be seen on the streets of Jerusalem and Judah and Righteousness, Lady Righteousness, got the attention of the people. But now that has changed. Lady Righteousness needs to be asked to stay. She doesn't stay of her own accord. She is a lady after all. And uh, when she's not wanted, she will leave and go somewhere else. And she'd gone, long gone. And the faithful city is no longer a faithful city. God calls her a harlot. She's gone off after other, after other gods. Become the dwelling place of from, instead of righteousness, the dwelling place of murderers. I think that's a, an absolute word because no longer were they caring for one another. And when you don't care for other people, when you hate other people or you disregard other people or you walk all over other people, you are treating them as if they did not exist. You are a murderer. You don't recognize who they are. The prophet reflects on this, on their past. He uses these two words, justice and righteousness. That's how they used to be. Those two words belong together, of course. Justice is uh, the exercise of authority. It's taking decisive action. It's uh, doing what it takes to do the right thing. Righteousness has to do with what the right thing is, the norms of rightness, embodied ultimately in God, who is holy Sound principles, justice expresses those principles in action as you do the right thing for other people. Righteousness and justice. But Lady Righteousness, the overnight guest, has gone. And the people are, he says, 
harlots. Now, this idea of prostitution or harlotry in the uh, Old Testament has to do largely with spiritual adultery. They have turned to, Judah and Jerusalem have turned to other gods, foreign gods. And what Isaiah is saying to these people, once you turn away from your trust, your exclusive trust in God, and you turn to other gods, you don't find yourself, you lose yourself. You lose your identity, who you are. If you're not committed to God in love and faithfulness, then righteousness and justice no longer become the hallmark of the life of God's people. So that's how he begins, spiritual adultery. He then goes on to talk about spiritual adulteration. Look at verse 22. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. If you're a wine lover, the latter part will absolutely offend you. Wine mixed with water. It's, it loses something. It definitely loses something. It loses its taste. The palate does not like that. No, it's not good. For a fine aficionado like myself, that's not a good thing. And neither is silver becoming dross. Well, the whole point is, of course, a movement from precious to base and from pure to impure. He's talking about the vanished glory of Israel and Judah. And he spells out what this vanished glory looks like in verse 23. Here's what's gone wrong. Your princes, that is the people who are your leaders, are rebels. The companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, runs after gifts, you know, the the gifts that go along with deals and so on. They run after those kind of gifts. And here's God's punchline as he speaks to his own people. Look at this. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Somewhere along the line, these people have lost a love for their fellow believers. They've lost a love for their neighbors. And they're not caring for their neighbors. They have no heart for their neighbors. And when God wants to deliver a reason as to why He is angry with them, why He is offended at His own people, and watch that, He's talking about His church of this period, when he wants to deliver the punchline as to why he is offended about their their lives, he brings his attention down on this subject. They are not acting justly and righteously. They're not caring for people we saw last time, the people who are weak, who are fragile, the people who are awkward and difficult, the people that uh, you easily overlook, the people that you easily just want out the way. That's what they wanted. They wanted the awkward people out the way. They wanted the poor out the way. They wanted the widow out the way. They wanted the fatherless out the way because they posed a nuisance. God says, I'm angry at the injustice that is going on among my own people. Among my own people. Can you imagine this? I heard about someone who was, uh, I think a German lady, who, uh, whose father was a great advocate of communism, very pro-communism, and uh, went to Russia uh, one period. And when he was in Moscow, one night he heard a scream. 
a scream. And that scream did it for him. He gave up communism. This does it was an amazing thing. You think, what an inconsequential thing that was, but no, it wasn't. He had such a high view of what communism would do and what communism could achieve. But when the reality hit him, when the reality hit him that in fact communism was an illusion, the perfect society did not exist. The scream did it for him. And do you know something? There are people, there are people in this room. There are people watching by webcast. There are people who've been in your seat in this room who don't come any longer or wish they weren't here this morning because all they see and hear when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ is the scream. The scream of those who've been abused by priests. The scream of those whose case has not been heard by the elders or the deacons or the deaconesses. The case of those who feel dismissed, diminished, overlooked, rejected, unwanted. That scream has been heard by people who no longer walk with us. And what this is saying to us this morning is, God hears that scream. And he is passionately, passionately, resolutely concerned about injustice among his own people. Get that? His own people. What was it that led to this? Well, verses 27 to 31 tell us what led to it. The words rebel and sinners, and then the phrase, they have forsaken the Lord. That's key phrase at the last part of this section. They have forsaken the Lord. In what sense have they forsaken the Lord? Well, look what he goes on to say. He talks about the oaks that they desired and the gardens that they had chosen. The oaks they had desired and the gardens they had chosen. Now, ever since the Garden of Eden, sanctuaries, temples, have been associated with gardens. The Garden of Eden was the first ever temple that God made. Adam was a priest in that temple, and Eve were priests serving God in that temple, and God met with them there. And when later on they, they, they built the tabernacle, God ordained, God commanded that the, the tabernacle be decorated by leaves and botanical images to remind them that the original garden, the original temple was a garden. And when you fast forward to the end of history and you get to the very end of the Bible, it will be a garden city, the city of God, with trees growing. These trees, these oaks that are mentioned here, and these gardens represent sanctuaries that are pagan sanctuaries. There's a kind of cultural or racial memory people in the Middle East had of the original garden temple. And so in pagan religions, what they did was they looked for a little group of trees on the top of a hill somewhere, and they would go there to worship nature, to pray to their fertility god, to offer their sacrifices, to copulate there sometimes in order to try and encourage the god to give fertility, both in terms of producing babies and in producing good crops. And in their gardens and in their bunch of trees, these Believers, these confessors of Yahweh, these 
people who could say the creed when it comes to what they believe about God, were keeping their options open and were assimilating into the worship of God the worship of these other idols as well. They were covering themselves. So they would pray to Yahweh, Lord, we pray that we might be fruitful. We pray that we might be fruitful in terms of having children. We might be fruitful in terms of having crops. But just to make sure we're going to go and we're going to offer something to the fertility God just to make sure because we're not absolutely confident that Yahweh is able to produce the goods. And idolatry always does this. In the church, what happens is we don't stop coming to services and we don't stop saying the creed and we don't stop say, believing that God is God, but we're not convinced that that's enough. We need something from the outside. We need what, something of the world's philosophy or the world's ideas. We need them to reassure us and we need reassurance from them because we're not entirely confident that what we have in Scripture is sufficient for us. Whether it's running off to find some scientific support for our belief that God created the world. Do we really need that? Or, or running off to the world to find some philosophical support for some of the principles that we believe coming out of Scripture. Do we really need that? It's called syncretism. It's taking the things of God and merging them into something that is not of God. And putting our confidence in both places. God's objecting to this. He's objecting to this. He says, this is spiritual adultery. And this was leading, look what he says about them in verse 28. They have forsaken the Lord. That was the core problem. In many ways, this first part of Isaiah resembles Romans chapter Romans chapter 1, in which Paul outlines what's wrong with humanity, and he puts it down to two things. Ungodliness on the one hand, and unrighteousness on the other. It was because their hold on God and their trust in the faithfulness of God, and the goodness of God, and the ability of God was slipping, that they were going into all these other things, and the net result in practice, get this, the net result in practice was... They were losing their love for their neighbor. You lose your love for God, you lose your love for your neighbor. Your care for one another, your care for people in need, that goes when you lose the clarity of your love for God. That was his charge against them. And look at his threat, verse 28. Those who forsake the Lord are finished. Verse 28 again. He will shatter those who are rebelling and sinful all at once. He's talking about people who won't repent, people who won't turn back, people who are invincible in their unbelief, who just have decided that they cannot completely rely on God himself. God says, what are they? He used his language he's used earlier on in this chapter, and this, uh, this rounds out what he has to say about these people. They're rebels, they're sinners, and they forsake the Lord. He says this, on the day, the final day, the day of judgment, when your idols, the great trees, are burning, you will burn with them. On that final day, when your gardens are being consumed, you will be consumed with them. 
That's his threat. And he says he will keep their threat. Look at what he says, verse 31. They will burn both of them together. That is, those who believe in them as well as those things. Ultimately, all idolatry is destructive. It's destructive. Their their trees with withered leaves, false religion, has no inherent life in it. It's like a garden without water, God says. And they will burn both of them together. And even though a remnant might be saved, and even within that remnant, only a few believers might be saved, God will judge. I want you to look at verse 24. Isaiah's great thumping, therefore, therefore, the Lord declares, because of their failure to trust, the Lord of hosts, the one who is sovereign in his status, the one who is omnipotent in his power, the one who is absolute in his rule over his people. Those descriptions are more than titular. They have the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one. They have the mighty one of Israel against them. Notice that. I will get relief from my enemies. God says, I just want want them out of here. I want relief from these people. What are you learning about God here? You're learning that God will not indefinitely put off dealing with sin. He may be long-suffering, but he will not suffer forever. He may put off judgment, but he will not put it off forever. He can't do that because he's just. I want to say this to you this morning. It is actually a good thing that God is just. You want Him to be just. You don't want God to be unjust. If God exists, you want God to be good, and you want God to be good all the time. And you want Him to be just because you want Him to do the right thing. The universe needs justice at the heart of it. What we're learning about God here is that God is just. And his threats are more serious than you could ever imagine. But secondly, I want you to notice that his promises are more generous than you could ever hope. Look, look, look at this. I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself and my foes. I will turn my hand against you. What are you going to expect here? What's, what's the expectation? After all this catalog of, of rebellion and sin and iniquity and all this That's negative stuff. What's going to happen next? I will turn my hand against you. Judgment is going to fall? Yeah. Is it final judgment? I will turn my, my hand against you and smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy and I will restore you. Same Hebrew word. On the one hand comes to judge, and the one hand, other hand comes to restore. When you thought this was final, when you thought this was going to be annihilation, God says, no, it's going to be purification. He says this to Israel. He says it to, to the Jews. This is going to be purification. 
I will relieve myself of my adversaries. I will avenge myself on my enemies. I will bring back my hand upon you. I will refine. I will remove your base metal. Same word, dross, used earlier. Your silver has turned to dross. Here God says, I'm going to take your dross and I'm going to refine it and I'm going to produce, remove all the alloy and I'm going to produce silver again. I'm going to undo what sin has done. I'm going to undo what sin has done. It's a great promise. What's he going to do? Look at this. Two things. One, restoration. Restoration. That's what he wants to do. Number one, I'm going to restore you. I will restore your judges, he says in verse 26. I'm going to not only undo what sin has done, but I'm going to do a positive thing. I'm going to use this judgment that I'm sending as a way of purifying, smelting away all that alloy alloy and, and, and dross in among you as my people. And I'm going to bring new leadership. Renewed leadership. I will restore your judges as at the first. He's thinking of David particularly, principally. David the great king. David who was the good king. That leader. That, that one. And people like him. Leaders like him. People like David. Good shepherds. Faithful shepherds of the flock. He will restore faithful shepherds who live under the authority of the chief shepherd the Lord Jesus, and who will guard the flock of God. Later on in this book, chapter 11, he clarifies the promised Davidic king would come, who would be a magnet for a new exodus, a new deliverance out of bondage into freedom. Later still in chapter 53, this David figure is the servant of the Lord who becomes the basis for the fulfillment of the promises to David. And then in chapters 56 to 66, the whole theme there is the return of the triumphant king to Zion, the temple mountain. In other words, here in these verses, we have the seedbed of the rest of the book of Isaiah kind of squashed together, microcosmic, ready to be opened up like a flower as the book proceeds. And there are two principles that stand in tension here. One is this inevitable judgment that was coming on a disobedient people on the one hand, and on the other hand, the promise of restoration. I'm going to vent my anger on my enemies, God says. I'm going to graciously bring to pass the plans that I have to bring back a greater David figure who will reign over a perfected city. Notice the afterwards of verse 26. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. I'm going to undo the mess you've made. I'm going to restore you, and you will be what they said you were. Only this time you will be what they said you were. You will be righteous, and you will be faithful. It's an amazing thing here because it raises an issue. It raises an issue of the tension that exists in our understanding of God and his purposes in the world. I mean, on the one hand, God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. The Bible makes that clear. 
Our confession says that. But the Scripture uses freely language like the counsel of his will, the purpose of his will, his will, good pleasure, and so on, in order to underline the fact that God has a plan and he's working all of history according to his plan and that everything, no matter what it is, even, even sin, comes under the governance of God. It says that God doesn't start it, doesn't initiate it, doesn't, doesn't even provoke it, but it's under his governance. It's under his governance. It also teaches us that God ordains not only the end, and the end is the city of righteousness, the faithful city, a church perfect, a church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, a perfect bride that we find pictured in the New Testament. That's his final goal. But how does he get us there? How does he get us there? He ordains not only the end, but the means to the end. He does that in our, in our own lives. God's ordained the house that you live in, the home that you have, the flat that you rent. But you had to look for it, and you had to get a real estate agent involved, and you had to negotiate a mortgage or earn enough money to pay the rent or whatever. You had to do all of that stuff yourself. And you say, well, if God ordained it, how, how does that all work? How is it that I have to do all that? Could you not do that work for me? I, that would be great, wouldn't it? We've been trying to get a mortgage ever since we've been here. We just got it, believe it or not, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, because I'm an international criminal and... Uh, <laughs> Or something. And an alien, that's, that's the problem. And, uh, and my little green man suit, I leave that at home. Don't bring it here. But, the, but here's the thing. Those two things are held in tension. Take the matter of salvation. God elects, chooses some people to salvation. But the way it works out is that a neighbor talks to them or brings them to church. Or they pick up a book and they read it. Or they hear something on the radio or whatever. In other words, God not only ordains the end, but he ordains the means. And even their rebellion and even his judgment is going to be the means by which God produces the perfect church in the end. This is the way it worked at Calvary. People... Peter says on the day of Pentecost, you crucified and killed him. But he also says, Jesus was crucified and killed according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And the upshot of all that is for, to leave us thinking God is actually in charge. He's in charge of things. He's in charge of the world. And I'm responsible for my actions. I can't blame him. He doesn't make me do it. The devil doesn't make me do it. God doesn't make me do it. I'm responsible for my actions, for my decisions, for my thoughts, for my feelings, for my behavior. I'm responsible. And yet God can overrule all of that stuff to achieve his purpose in the world. And what that does to me is it leaves me with my mind blown, my jaw dropped, my pride humbled, my heart bowed, my mouth praising him. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and his paths. Past finding out. God is going to restore 
going to restore not only a little remnant back to Jerusalem, which he did, by the way. And among that remnant, the few who were real believers. But he's doing the work today of restoring his church by calling people from every tribe and nation. He's doing that already. He's building that final city. How is he going to do it? Here's the second word. Restoration by redemption. By redemption. Look at verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent by righteousness. How is he going to restore Zion? Two parts. Objectively and subjectively. Subject, objectively, he is going to do a work of redemption. Subjectively, he's going to provoke or inspire or get a human response, which is repentance. What do I mean by redemption? The word redemption means fundamentally to, to buy back something at, at, at a cost, at a price. Like the little boy who made his little wooden boat, took it down to the seashore and was putting it into the water and it was floating there and he was enjoying it and a big wave came and pulled his little boat out to sea and he lost it. And then one day, some months later, he's walking down a little street in his little village and he looks in the shop window and there in the shop window he sees his very own little boat. And he goes back home, gets his pocket money and comes back, pays his money takes his little boat out, goes home, and he says, Look, Mom, I made it, and I bought it. It's twice mine. Twice mine. And what God is in the business of doing is, He's made you, and in redemption, He buys, He pays the price in order to purchase you back for himself. Now, what is the purchase price? Isaiah will tell us, actually, later on. He will spell out what the purchase price is in Isaiah chapter 53, one of the famous chapters of Isaiah. But he's, setting the, he's laying down the foundations now of that thought. He wants to place it in your mind that there is going to be a purchase price. But his main idea, and I'll come back to that in a moment. I'm not going to tell you that. Just wait and see. His main point here, I want you to notice, is this. He's addressing this big question, which is in your mind. I can see from the confused expression in your face. How? How can God make a case against Israel that Israel needs to have his judgment, that his judgment is absolutely righteous, that they deserve it, that it's coming to them, how can he do that and he be just and at the same time say he's going to restore them, some of them, and he's going to do it by redeeming them? How can that be? How can that be? That's the big problem that's addressed, or that's raised here, and it's addressed in the New Testament, isn't it? You remember in Romans chapter... Three. This is precisely the issue that the Apostle Paul is addressing. He, he summarizes what he's just written, and it's similar to what Isaiah has just said. There is no distinction, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No distinction, 
We're all in the same boat. Every one of us, no matter how religious you are, irreligious you are, no matter how noble you are or ignoble you are, no matter what color you are, what race you are, what, what status you are, whatever you are, all of us, without distinction, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, says Paul, here's, what, here's what's happened. God has justified us by his grace, that is, his generous kindness, as a gift. You didn't earn it, didn't deserve it, you didn't go out and purchase it, you didn't have the money to buy it, you didn't have the good works to negotiate for it. It is justification by grace as a gift. How does he do that? How does he justify people? How can he justify these people? He has just condemned here in Isaiah chapter 1. He says he's going to do it by justice and by righteousness. How can that be? Here's what Paul says. Listen. How is he going to do this? He's going to do it in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. Well, let me, let me back up a minute. He's going to do it through the redemption. Same word as Isaiah uses. The purchase price in Christ Jesus. The purchase price paid by the Lord Jesus. What was that purchase price? He goes on to explain whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propici? What is Satan? Propitiation. You mean you didn't use that at breakfast time? What does it mean? It means to turn aside, to turn aside anger. You know your mummy used to do that. Your dad came in, he was blazing angry because you'd crashed his car, and your mom just had the right way of placating him, you know, calming him down, diverting his anger. That's kind of a very human illustration of propitiation. It's really serious with God. He is angry, and his, his anger is justified anger. You can see that in the passage we've just been studying in Isaiah. Justified anger. What does Jesus do? He propitiates. He turns away justified anger. How does he do it? Well, by his blood. His blood, that is his sacrifice. His death on the cross. He puts himself in harm's way. He gives his own life as the ransom price. The wrath of God that we deserve, the judgment that's coming, he takes it. He becomes the ultimate covenant breaker. He is pinned to the cross and he endures there the covenant curse. Cursed is everyone who is nailed to a cross. And when the darkness falls and the, the wrath of God descends, when hell is unleashed in all its infinite and eternal fury upon the Son of God hanging there between heaven and earth, there outside the gate, the wrath of God is exhausted in the person of His Son on behalf of His people. And the redemption price is paid. And the wrath is turned away. 
And listen to what Paul goes on to say. He did this to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. How can God be just if punishment is required? Here's his answer. I'll take the punishment for them. To take the punishment for them, you'd have to be human. God the Son says, I'll become human. To be worthy to take the punishment for them, you'd have to be a perfect human. I will keep the law of God on their behalf. To take the punishment for them, you'd have to come under the curse, the covenant curse. How can you come under the covenant curse without just breaking any of the laws? Answer, allow them to pin me to a cross. Payment, God cannot twice demand. Once from my bleeding surety's hand, my guarantor's hand, And then again at mine. Justice is satisfied. The resolution to Isaiah's question here, how can Zion be redeemed by justice and those who repent by righteousness? At the cross, justice and mercy kiss each other. And that's the basis for our joy. That's the basis of our praise. It's the basis of our relationship with God. That's what sets us into the godly line. Then we turn around and having realized how much we are loved by God, we look around at our brothers and sisters and we love them and we look at our neighbor and we love them and we look at our enemy and we love them. Because God begins to work his justice in our hearts. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, that when your Son on the cross cried, finished, he meant and he means exactly what he said. That all the work of our redemption has been done. The possibility of our restoration is now secure. We pray for that great Zion, that great city that is coming, the great church of God, perfect, pure, and pray that you would hasten the day when we see the sun come back and that city descend and get in in the action as you promise we shall. In Jesus' name, amen.